0: Well, good morning, you guys. So to begin our time together today, we are going to read from Luke 15. So if you have your Bible, you're welcome. In verse, all the times are approaching, listen. It says in sinners, to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in an open field, and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need repentance. (laughs) do you want to come back up I mean that's (laughs) Uh, I love that passage of scripture Ellie we love you too if you couldn't tell yeah you guys um, if you would turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 19 a little further down the road from the passage that we read but it'll connect to this back especially at the end Um, and if you weren't with us last week, let me kind of explain my process and how we ended up here in Luke chapter 19 this morning. Last week we were in Mark chapter 10, and there's a parallel account of the story of Mark 10 and Luke 18. But we looked at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, where the disciples attempted to prevent little children from being brought to Jesus. And we talked about how, um, you know, they, they really were spiritually insensitive to what Jesus wanted to do in that moment. And even if their intentions were great or for the best, they still uh, misunderstood the heart of Christ in that moment. And he was, he was indignant, Scripture said. It's the only time that speaks of the anger of Jesus as being indignation. It was a strong anger. It's the only time in the Gospels that that's recorded. And it, and it kind of led us um, to consider our own spiritual sensitivity and as I've marinated on that passage this week further, and as I was thinking about the disciples' uh, heart in that that situation, it led me to think about reactions to Jesus and his, his interactions with broken, sinful people. And by that, I mean this: it's interesting to look at the reactions, especially of religious people, around the way that Jesus lived. And it's so fascinating to me because, as Christians, can I just be really honest with everyone? Thank you. We often look at that situation, where we're like, oh, those Pharisees, the religious leaders, man, they were so off base. They were so out of whack. They were so out of step with what Jesus was doing. That's crazy to me. Who are the religious people in this room? Well, we are. And you're like, no, we're the disciples. Not any better. When you look at misunderstanding who Jesus is, the disciples were also kind of lost half the time. And so we can learn things not only from looking at the way the disciples did things, but we need to be cautious and take special note when we see the religious leaders around Jesus reacting to him the way that they do. And here's the only thing I want us to to hold ourselves accountable to and to allow God to hold us accountable to, is that we would be people who are spiritually sensitive to look at the life of Christ and be like him. If that is our heart, to be like Jesus, we approach biblical text so humbly. Because Jesus did things perfectly. He lived a perfect life. And when I'm aiming to model myself after Jesus, I'm not trying to perfect myself. I'm humbling myself to receive from the Spirit the ability to walk in the way That he has called me to walk. As Paul would say to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. I desire to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. And that's what Paul urged them to do. This led me to think about passages such as this one. That we're going to look at this morning. And to think about the text that we read at our opening as well. As the Pharisees react to who Jesus is eating with. As they react to the situations that he's in. You guys... The Pharisees hated that Jesus welcomed and ate with tax collectors. They hated it. It drove them crazy. They couldn't stand this. Now, the disdain for tax collectors, it's interesting because we look at it like, why are they so upset about this? Well, you would be upset about it too, probably. And so would I. The disdain for tax collectors was understandable in Jesus' day because the Roman government contracted tax collectors to gather established amounts for the emperor. And they were allowed as well to take their cost of living, if you will. But the problem with the tax collectors in Jesus' day is that many of them were taking much more because they could, because they've been empowered by Rome to collect taxes. They weren't just taking what they needed. They were taking however much they wanted. And so many of them were quite quite rich. They had made themselves rich. But think about how they were gaining their riches. They were gaining their riches off of the taxes of people. This was hurting others. It was making other people impoverished. For them to live so wealthy. So, thus, people who were poor and could barely pay their taxes were being further gouged by tax collectors to provide for their lavish lifestyle. And I think that that would bother us, wouldn't it? Doesn't it bother you when people extort, when they take things from you that isn't fair? And Jesus called a tax collector to be one of his disciples, he called Matthew. Or you could say Levi, because he's referred to as both in scripture. Matthew was called by Jesus to follow him, and he was a tax collector. Do you think that caused any arguments amongst the group? You guys, Jesus didn't withdraw from people who were sinful and who had made these kind of mistakes. He engaged with them. He ate with them and even called one of them to be his disciple. It's interesting to look at the love of Jesus for little children misunderstood by the disciples and then to look at the love of Jesus for tax collectors that was misunderstood by the religious. And to look at Christ and say, am I like him? Not controversial for no reason, but obedient to the father to the point where I don't care what people think. Am I obedient to the father to where I do not care what people think about me? I just need to be obedient. I just need to live in a manner worthy of my calling, and that is to be Christ-like. So let's look at Luke chapter 19 this morning. We'll look at the first 10 verses, a text that beautifully continues our look at the loving heart of Christ in light of his love for children. Here we see his love for a tax collector, and we're introduced to a man named Zacchaeus. And this is a fun story. But I really wanted to talk about that one time when the camel went through the eye of a needle. And if you're like, what? It'll make sense. If you know your Bible, you're like, oh, I see. Just, just, it'll make sense. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He, this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. Hey, that's mean. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look. I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. The backdrop of this interaction is such a fascinating biblical location, Jericho. We think of Jericho right away. You think of guys with horns walking around city walls. Or maybe you think of the guy who built Jericho and lost his firstborn because that was the curse on the city. But here, Jericho in Jesus's day was a major custom center. It was a place where a lot of things were being brought in, checked over, properly taxed. And so as the custom center and being in Jericho, the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, was really in prime time. He was in the prime location, not only to do his tax collecting job, but he was in a location where he could extort and take quite a bit of money. He was most likely very, very rich indeed, because he was kind of in place for to be in of commerce there in, Jer- in Jericho for tax collecting to say he was able to take advantage to his full benefit. And became quite rich. Inster- interestingly enough about the name Zacchaeus, it actually means righteous one. It's funny um, how often you, know, you see these names in scripture and you can look at people that either live up to them or are the exact opposite of them. In scripture, when you see a name like Zacchaeus, it should immediately make you think about the burden of having a name where people call you righteous one and you're one of the most unrighteous men in the city. You're someone who steals from others for your own gain. And we don't know what led up to verse 3. We don't know what brings us to this point of verse 3, to, to Zacchaeus's you know, just desperation to see Jesus. I would suggest this if you read just prior to this. Jesus heals a blind man just outside the city. He heals a blind man just as he's coming into Jericho. And when he enters Jericho, I would imagine there's quite a bit of hubbub going on about this guy being able to see. And something... Perhaps something before this even happened had gone on inside of Zacchaeus' heart. No matter what, somehow Zacchaeus had heard or seen that Jesus was in Jericho and he was very excited about it. Look at verse 3 because this is important. He was trying to see who Jesus was. Verse 3 says, but he was not able because of the crowds since he was a short man. G. Campbell Morgan said it really well. He said he had the disability of shortness. I apologize to all my short friends. And my wife. So so running, it says, ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. For so many, having an abundance in this life has led to a lack of faith by the mere absence of need. For so many, would we even care to pay attention to God if we had everything that we needed at the moment? Think about the things that concern your mind the most. Is it your relationship with God or your lack of something? Is it because you think that you might not have your heart aligned with his or you may not be hearing from him clearly? When was the last time we shed tears and were broken because our personal relationship with Jesus didn't feel right? Something was off as opposed to someone in our life is a mess or financially we're not where we think we need to be, or there's a situation that I don't know how to handle, or I have to go do this thing like go back to school, right? How often are we so concerned about those things that we haven't given a second thought as to what's going on between us and the Lord in our own relationship? Am I walking with him? For some of us, our abundance provides a lack of faith. We have too much, we're too comfortable. We've had it too easy for too long. You're like, my life isn't easy. It's hard to say that when you go to Africa. It's hard to say that and walk through Kibera Slum. It's hard to say that and walk the streets of Port-au-Prince. In Haiti. It's really difficult to go to places where people are drinking water that would instantly make you ill and putting it in their children's bottles to to give them because that's all they have And we say that our lives are hard here. I'm not saying you don't have struggles. I'm not saying you don't have troubles. But when you look at the abundance that we have here, how much God has given to us. I think that in a lot of ways, it dulls our senses to see our need for the Lord. Because we can lean on so many other things. There can oftentimes be a lack of faith because our pride has convinced us that we have both earned and deserve what we have as well. There can be a pride there that takes satisfaction in the fact that I built this with my own two hands, right? I work hard to provide for this family. I've said it a hundred times. I work hard to provide for this family. I'm not going to let you break my stuff. I say to my children, what's fascinating is when you think about the ability to work, God gave you the ability, right? When you think about the stuff that you've worked with, God gave you the stuff. When you think about the money that can, I just stop there. Everything you have is a gift. Every ability, every tiny little thing that makes your life what it is has been given to you by God. And it's interesting because so often having an abundance or having too much prevents us from Having faith in Christ. Wearsby said it this way perhaps more than anything else, it is pride that keeps many successful people from trusting Jesus. And I like how he puts that in quotations successful, because successful according to that standard is only a worldly perspective. That's what we would consider on the worldly scale to be successful. What is success for the Christian life? It's obedience to God, it's obedience. I mean, we just studied First John, that's pretty much what the whole letter's about, is about obedience. You guys, we're going to talk in a moment about a, an example of this in Scripture, but it, it doesn't have to be this way. For those who are willing to receive the kingdom as a little child, as we learned last week from Mark chapter 10, especially in verse 15, Jesus made that whole situation with the little kids being brought to himself a spiritual lesson as he said, "This is how you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's as a little child, and he's holding infants." The word that Luke uses to describe it in chapter 18 is infant children. And he says, this is how you get in. Dependence, reliance, absolute trust in God, faith in what he has done. Because we are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. We believe, we trust in God. He is the one who has saved us. It's not based on achievement or self-worth, but relying on the grace of God alone. There is hope and salvation in that faith, in that trust. That's where we are saved is by what he has finished on the cross. What does it look like to live that way, to live in a way that's so dependent on God and not dependent on our things? When a person recognizes their need for a savior, That all the wealth in the world, all the skills we possess cannot save us. They leave off pretending to be something that impresses the world. They leave off trying to be something that's impressive to other people or to other situations. And they act as a child. Now, I'm not saying we should all run around here and shoot Nerf guns at each other all afternoon. Because we're all going to be like children today. Although it would be a lot of fun. You guys... What happens is we care a lot less about how we look and a lot more about our heart posture towards the Lord. You could say that culturally we might even throw out a cultural norm so that we could be close to Jesus. We might give up something that everyone else does so that it doesn't prevent us from being close to Christ. Maybe we would even run when it wasn't socially acceptable or climb a tree. That's exactly what Zacchaeus did. It was socially unacceptable especially for men of his stature to run. They didn't have Nikes back then. It didn't look nearly as cool. But you guys, it was socially unacceptable. You don't run. You send people to do things for you when you have a lot of money. Not only that, imagine what it looked like to see little you know, Zacchaeus climbing a sycamore tree. I just picture him holding on to the lowest branch and kicking with all of his might, you know, like I whatever it is, it probably didn't look great. It probably didn't look cool. He wasn't parkouring up there. He was scrambling because he wanted to see who Jesus was. Who is this guy? There's something different. Something has engaged his heart and it's caused him to set aside all the pretense and all the cultural norms. There's something there. There's something there that I really want for our church. And I hope that we instill into each other, do not be afraid to set aside the cultural norm to be passionate about Jesus, to be passionate about being close to him. Let us not follow the trends. Let us follow his word. Amen. Let us be passionate about what Jesus was passionate about. And that was a heart that longed for him. Shortness had left him at a disadvantage. But that wasn't going to stop him from seeing Jesus. He got up into that tree. By the way, sycamore trees, you know, the large ones, they still had low-hanging branches that could support a guy. Like, they have pretty strong low-hanging branches. Trees in my house couldn't do it. That thing's coming down if I climb it. <laughs> but you guys, he threw the social etiquette aside, and he ran, and he climbed anything. I need to see Jesus. But that wasn't even the best part. The best part of this story is not that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. The best part of the story is that Jesus was looking for Zacchaeus. He wants to see him. Notice this in verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looks up and how comedic would it be to see little Zacchaeus sitting in a tree? K-I-S-S. I'm sorry, he wasn't doing He was looking for Jesus. But he looks up And he sees Zacchaeus sitting in this tree. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now, there's a practical part of this where, you know, a a rabbi like Jesus would stay and would rely on the hospitality of people who were under his teaching to provide a home for him, to provide a place. Jesus didn't have a house. As he moved around and taught in different places, he would rely on the hospitality and generosity of others to possess Jesus here. It was this, there there was a necessity for him to have a place, but that's talking about the necessity. Zacchaeus needed Jesus in his house. Zacchaeus needed to open his door and let Jesus come in. What a beautiful illustration of behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you open, I will come in and we will have fellowship together from Revelation 3. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, it's necessary. I need to stay at your house today. Come on down. He thought, I think that Zacchaeus thought that he was seeking after Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him. Church, let us apply this lesson to our lives now. Right now, the Holy Spirit through the church is seeking lost sinners. Right now, through us, through our lives, through your day-to-day life, The Holy Spirit is seeking the lost through you. Are you a willing participant of that? Or are we too caught up with our own stuff? Are we too caught up with our own things? Are we participating in the work of the Spirit in this way? For us, this means that we need to be like Christ. Not like those who refuse to sit with people who are sinners and refuse them the gospel. Are you willing to have a meal with someone that's very uncomfortable? Are you ready to sit down and talk to somebody and hear their story and engage with them even if you don't agree with them? What's your willingness? See, what I would look at in this situation is when we see the example of Christ and you think about the tax collectors, let me say this. Who is the person that you least want to be around? Are you willing to sit down with them and talk to them about Jesus? Continually. Are you ready to continue to make yourself available to them? Who is the people group? that you have the hardest time interfacing with? Who are the ones you're like, I just don't know how to engage with I don't want to talk with them. Yeah, them, go to them. Those are the ones that the Lord wants you to talk to. Yeah, that guy in the mall with the man bun. Jesus wants you to sit and talk to him. Oh, that's starting off easy. That's starting off real easy. Are you willing to go and talk to people that you may even have personal prejudice against? By the way, dump that. Get over it. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And if they don't belong to him, they count as the lost. And are we allowing him to seek out the lost people in this world through our very lives? That's what we're here to do. Whoever it is that pops into your mind, I can't talk to them. That's the one. That's the one. Are you willing? Are you ready? They don't want to talk to me. You can't force them. But if they're willing to talk to you, if they're willing to sit down with you, and explain their story. You guys, is there anyone that needs to hear the gospel and is willing to sit and have a meal with you that you think is too gross or too much of a sinner to be around? That would be the tax collectors for the Jews. Let us not be Pharisees, church. We need to listen to people. We need to hear what they have to say. and like handing a, cu- a cup of cold water to someone who is parched and dying. Give them the gospel. You're not agreeing with someone to listen to them. You realize that, right? You're not agreeing with them to listen to them. What you're doing is you're engaging with their heart. And you're opening a door of opportunity to give them a cup of cold water. Take those opportunities. Look outside of the norm. I love what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. It's necessary for me to come stay with you. Jesus was not the one who was in the greatest need, Zacchaeus was. And even though people scoffed, and it says that in the text, immediately there's, there's, th- there's pushback. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with the sinful man. <sighs> Are we afraid to be seen with some people? Talking to some people, associating with some people? And Jesus wasn't. Now, I'm not saying partaking in their sin. Jesus never partook in their sin. But he wasn't afraid to be with people and to minister to them. I had a friend in Bible college who used to freak me out, man. (laughs) We were in Los Angeles at the LA Arena doing outreach for a a rave party um, that was late into the night. It was 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And my friend... And I, there was a pathway that goes in between the LA Coliseum and the, the Los Angeles Arena. And this place is pumping. There's tons of stuff going on. People are doing drugs, drunk. There's all kinds of weird stuff happening. Not long after this story, um, LA SWAT showed up and broke the whole thing up. It was crazy. My mom would have just slapped me if she saw me there. We were there to minister. And so we were there. We were just kind of looking for opportunities to minister to people. And my friend starts walking down that little walkway that's in between these two venues and there's a bunch of gang members down there. And he walks right up to them and just starts sharing the gospel with them. And that would have been okay if he wasn't the whitest man I've ever met in my life. (laughs) But he was. And he walked right up to those guys and, and I'm with another guy that's in our group. We just start praying, not for their lives, not for their souls. I'm praying that My friend doesn't die. As I watched it happen, you guys, one of them gets down on his knees. And then another one does. And they all get down on their knees together, and he starts praying over these guys. He led them to the Lord right there on the sidewalk. At 2 a.m. in Los Angeles, at a rave party, you guys... Don't be afraid and don't be ashamed to do what the Lord's telling you to do. Set that aside. Step out and let the Lord use you. Now, I'm not telling any young person here, like, I want to go to a rape. Not stop. Stop, stop, stop. Let's pray about this. But I'll say this. The Lord absolutely had us there for a reason that night. And I got to watch something powerful happen. What's cool is I, I know that I'll see those guys in heaven someday. Because... My buddy was willing to walk down that causeway and not be afraid. Don't be afraid of being scoffed. If the Lord's telling you to go and step out, step out. Love people. Care for them. You don't know their story. They could have been through so much and you have no idea what they've been through. Hear them. Love them in the name of Christ. Those gang members needed Jesus just as much as anyone else. And they got saved that night. And I'm so thankful that they're part of our family. Look at the change in Zacchaeus. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood there. And most would agree that this may even be the next morning. It could be in that moment. It could, there's some time could have lost. Maybe it didn't. Either way, something had happened. In his conversation with Jesus at this point. Because Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord. Look I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone. I'll pay back four times as much. And Jesus says today's salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Notice this about verse 8. Before Jesus. Zacchaeus. His whole lifestyle was, I'll take, I'll extort, I'll get what I want. Look at him after receiving Christ. Look at him after receiving Jesus. I'll give. I'll restore. I'm going to give this away. He is reflecting the heart of Jesus himself. This is a changed man. He's gone from I'll take, I'll extort to, I'll give, I'll restore. I'm going to be part of building these people back and being a blessing to their lives. Morgan said it really well. Salvation then turns an essential nature from greed to graciousness and turns the passion of a life from selfishness to righteousness. Church, we have... For those who are in Christ here this morning, listening online, going to watch this archived message down the road sometime. If you have received Jesus, if you have accepted the free gift of salvation, you're saved. That doesn't mean that we don't need daily, if not moment by moment, calibration. Allow this to calibrate you. Is there greed in me that needs to be turned to graciousness? Is there selfishness that needs to be turned to righteousness? Do I need to be renewed? Do I need to come back to the Lord and let him refresh me in this way? I would add to Morgan's quote, this for consideration as well. Salvation ought to cause us to be extravagant towards others in light of God's extravagance toward us through Christ. We ought to be extravagant towards others. Notice this. Jesus was extravagant towards Zacchaeus. I think it is absolutely a part of knowing Christ that shifts us into this posture of caring and serving and giving to people freely. It was considered extremely generous to give one-fifth of your possessions to the poor. But Zacchaeus said he would give half. That's extravagant. Also, while repayment for extortion was 20% over what had been extorted, that's in Leviticus 6.5, Zacchaeus promised to repay four times as much. That is extravagance. That is going over the top. The reality of this is we have been given so much more than possessions or riches in Jesus. And this is my call to us, church. Are we giving of ourselves spiritually and physically? Are we caring for one another, not only in the spiritual sense where we are investing in each other, but we are also giving to each other as well. This is for all of us. We all ought to be living this way. Extravagantly giving of our lives for the enrichment and encouragement of others. After all, have we not been brought into the family of God? Have we not been brought into the household of God? You really think you're going to outgive him? You really think that you're going to out bless people more than he can bless you or work in you? Oh, I'm not saying like tuck in that love gift and you'll get more back. That's not what I'm saying at all. Not at all. I'm saying this. If God has really stirred our hearts, we ought to be people who pour out our lives into each other. Knowing that he is our supply. Before or are not, I'll lose. I'll give him. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. I've simply paraphrased it, but Francis Chan had a great statement about this. He said, you know, what's the worst that could happen? My wife and I just figured if we gave it all away and we starved to death and we walk into heaven, what's the worst that can happen? He goes, we'll just look at God and go, oops. <laughs> we, we, we thought you would give us more food. <laughs> like, we just kind of gave it. He's like, Do we have that mindset, though? I'm willing to give it all away to bless others. And if God's like, well, you gave it all away, and now you get to go, okay. But you really think he's not going to take care of you? Didn't he say not to be anxious about anything? He goes, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. We went through Sermon on the Mount just recently. Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't be anxious for those things. God knows what you need. He'll take care of you. Obey. Walk in obedience. Don't be fearful. It's amazing how people who have so much can be so incredibly fearful. Can be so afraid to lose. It's almost like we're too attached to it. And Jesus says this over Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this house. Not because Zacchaeus is doing. The doing is, pro- is being produced from his changed heart. He's not saying that Zacchaeus' actions have saved him. He's saying Zacchaeus' actions prove that his heart has changed because he met jesus he received jesus and what a beautiful picture he received him into his home he brought jesus in prior to that day zacchaeus was the master of his house after that day jesus was the master of that house and from it came generosity came extravagance towards others he says, he too is a son of Abraham. It's interesting. Paul makes the same point clear to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 7 of his letter. He says, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Those who have faith are truly Abraham's offspring. He says, that's what matters the most. That's what makes us the children of Abraham. That's why the kids in Sunday school can sing it. Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. We're not going to do any more than that, but that's because everyone's going to get up. You guys, the Lord's final statement is so amazing. And it's suggested by some commentators that it's the key verse of the entire gospel of Luke. I'd say that'd be hard to argue, um, but I could argue it, but I mean, like it's just so powerful because Jesus says it himself. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, this is why I've come to seek and save the lost. You guys, I want to direct your attention back to Luke chapter 15. We read these, or Ellie read these verses for us this morning. And I want to read from verses four through seven. It'll be on the screen as well. You can turn your Bibles, whatever you prefer. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders when he arrives he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, "Rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep." In the same way there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. There is a rejoicing, there is a special celebration for a lost sheep that's brought home again. Jesus indeed came to seek and save the lost. Are we living out the same mission? Are we receiving the kingdom as little children? And are we willing to not only let Jesus come in, let him stay, let him take up residence, which I believe, obviously believers, we have done that. But is that changing our lives? Is it making us missional? Is it making us long for the salvation of others, wanting to seek and save the lost as the church being empowered by the Holy Spirit? There's one final thought to this. This isn't the first rich person that Jesus has interacted with. And in fact, it's the second one in the last chapter or so. If you go back to chapter 18, there's a guy named the rich young ruler that Jesus interacts with. And the comparison between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, I believe is absolutely taken for granted when you read this text I think that it's supposed to be in our minds it's supposed to be in our hearts having looked at his interaction with Jesus and I do want to read this to you this morning I hadn't planned to but I want to read this to you really quickly from Luke chapter 18 verse 18 it says a ruler asked him him being Jesus good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life why do you call me good Jesus asked him no one is good except God alone you know the commandments do not commit adultery Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. and You will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. The rich young ruler attempted to prove His righteousness, only to be shown that he had an idol problem. Zacchaeus became like a child, received Jesus into his home and life. And after having done that, was filled with the desire to give and restore. When Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus, it changed his life and it made him generous. When Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler, he became despondent, saddened. One left disheartened, the other was reborn. He wanted to do for others what the Lord had done for him. Remember what Jesus said then to the rich young ruler. After he left, was saddened and walked away. In Luke eighteen twenty-four through 27, it'll be on the screen. Seeing that he had become sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. At that very moment, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he tells them that he's going to go to the cross. At that very moment in the Gospel of Luke, do you know what he does right after that? He leaves Jerusalem and he heads east. Towards Jericho. And on the road to Jericho. Just outside the city. He meets the blind man. And he restores his sight. And upon entering Jericho. He meets up with Zacchaeus. You guys. Sometimes we separate scripture. Sometimes we don't hear this all in a row. He interacts with the rich young ruler. And tells the disciples. This is a difficult thing. He says it's easier for a camel. To go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, who who then can be saved? Some people suggest that this was a location at the city of Jerusalem, that the eye of the needle was a place that was hard to get your camel through. Absolutely not true. You can disprove it historically. And if the disciples around him looked at him and said, how is it's impossible then? They immediately look at him and say, this is not possible. It's not going to happen. And Jesus says, it's impossible with men. It's not impossible with God. Let's go to Jericho and I'll show you how it's done. He leads Zacchaeus, a rich man, right through the eye of the needle. You guys, stop telling God what he can and can't do. Stop telling him that it's pointless for you to share with somebody. Stop telling him that it's impossible and that you shouldn't pray over this person or cry out for this situation or show up and live a God-honoring life in front of these people because they're never going to believe. You don't know and you weren't meant to know. You were called to live out your life in obedience to God regardless of knowing how the results will work out. We are called to obedience, church, not to results. And the reason that exists is because we are called to fight from a victory and not for a victory. Because the victory is in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Guys, that's the truth of it. We don't have to look back and say, how am I going to fix all this? You don't have to fix all of it. You see, because Jesus has the power to work inside the impossibilities of men. Step forward in faith and stop letting your possessions, your stuff, your idols, your things stop you. Go. Walk by faith and not by sight. When we are convicted by the word of God, we have so much hope, church. We don't have to be like the rich young ruler. When convicted, he was saddened. We can be like Zacchaeus. When convicted, he rejoiced. And he changed because he received it. Worship team, come on up. We're going to take communion together, church. And, and you've heard me talk about, crazy to me, how communion is a family is, and we take communion. And I think it's an actual, like, it's it's crazy to me how much of a, every time together, I just feel like it's a wonderful response to the word of God. To remember who we are. That he died on the cross for us. That we are partaking of his body. And we are taking the cup to remember his blood that was shed. And that this is a family meal that's for the church. And I have no problem asking anyone who who has not received Christ, let this pass. Do not take communion. If you are part of the family of God, you are invited to take communion. This is a family meal. But you guys, what's awesome about this is that so often, in, in the past for me at least, I felt like communion was something that you had to be really somber, really saddened by. This isn't something to be sad over. We rejoice in the sacrifice of Jesus. As much as it is a, a tragic thing to think of God becoming human and, and, and dying on the cross, we are also rejoicing in the resurrection that he is alive today. Amen? Amen? We can rejoice in communion because it's something we share because he did complete the payment for our sin. Because the cross was sufficient. His sacrifice was sufficient for us. And we are born again because of it. And Bonhoeffer said this, The day of the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community reconciled in their hearts with God and the brethren, the congregation receives the gift of the body and blood of Jesus Christ and receiving that it receives forgiveness, new life and salvation. This is invigorating for us. With those who are going to hand out the communion, come forward and I'm going to pray over this. And as we distribute communion, um, I just want you to take that and hold on to it. When you get the elements, we're going to take these together Um, But I want you to take a moment and just thank Jesus in your heart for his sacrifice. Recognize that this is an occasion of joy for us as a church. That we receive the gift of the body and the blood of Jesus. And we receive his forgiveness, his new life. And we remember that he has saved us from our sin. Let this sink in deep, church. This is not just another time eating a cracker, and drinking some juice. You are partaking in something that is very special. So let us thank Jesus for it. Lord, as we partake in communion together, Lord, even as the song is playing, God, I pray that we would be still in our hearts, listening to words that are being sung, but also, Lord, listening for you. We want to be refreshed. Lord, we want to freshly receive forgiveness. Calibrate us. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the blood. Thank you, Lord, that this is something that we can partake together because of what you've done. Let's take a moment. Let's stay quiet. Let's keep our hearts in this place. And let's go ahead and distribute the elements for communion. We'll take them together in just a moment.